Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's wonderful to have you with us today. We are coming to a close of our theme for um, a number of weeks on uh, death, dying and future hope. Today we are going to look into a very important uh, topic, the judging process. I'd like to welcome our panel for today. It's good to have you with us, Len. Well, thank you for the welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. It's good to have you with us, Joe. Thank you, Nick. Um, it's good to be good to be joining the panel today. Welcome to the program, Will. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be part of the panel. Lydia, thank you for joining us. Yes, I feel very glad. Praise the Lord for that. Jerry, it's good to have you part of this uh, discussion. In particular, because uh, you prepared this Bible study for today and you are going to facilitate uh, the discussion. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. It's a privilege to be here. Jerry, I will um, hand it over to you. Please um, take us through. Okay. So the concept of a final judgment implies being held accountable for one's actions and one's words and how we have lived our lives and treated others. For judgment to take place, there must be a standard or set of rules by which our actions are measured. And for justice to occur, these rules have to be applied. Now, in a worldly setting, the rules are sometimes changed or modified to achieve a certain outcome. Or justice comes with such a hefty price tag attached that it's abandoned and no longer pursued. As we journey through life, some of the wrong actions and choices we make may result in consequences from which we, though suffering some form of loss, are able to recover. In the biblical context, however, the result of God's final judgment is always just and fair and irreversible. So what steps are involved in God's judgment process? What does it reveal about his character? Why is God's final judgment something we can actually look forward to. So listeners, we're going to try and tackle these very important questions and uh, hope to get some clarification on, on the final judgment. But before we go there, I'd like to invite Will, if you could uh, say a prayer for us. Sure. Dear Lord, we know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that is, that in this world, this world has to offer for us to uh, forfeit eternity and separate us from our Lord and the joy of life everlasting in the place that he has prepared for us. Please strengthen our resolve to find refuge in the Saviour, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm 139 speaks of God's perfect knowledge of man. I'd just like to read a few verses from Psalm 139, if I may. It says there, and I'm reading from the New King James Bible version, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before 
and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And even if you go further down into the same psalm, in verse 13 it continues with, For you formed me my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God knows everything. God knows all the facts. He has perfect knowledge, including every secret thing, whether good or evil, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. In other words, nothing can be hidden from God, not even the smallest detail. If this is true, then God doesn't need an investigation into our lives to reach a verdict, since he already knows. So what is the purpose of the judgment? Who benefits from the judgment? And why is it of critical importance in a broader context? As we will see, the Bible describes the final end-time judgment process as having three main phases that we can call the pre-advent judgment, and then the millennial judgment, and then finally the executive judgment. The whole process ends with the vindication of the righteous on the one hand and the condemnation or second death of the unrighteous or what we could call the wicked on the other hand. Nick, is the judgment something to be afraid of? Jerry and panel, I believe that's a very good question, you know, because uh, when we hear the word judgment in different uh, ways, we are always raising our antennas, you know, to see what's all about. Oh, we don't like to be judged. Sometimes we are judgmental. <laughs> um, there are lots of things about judgment. But, you know, you mentioned something a bit earlier, that God knows everything. But we don't. And because we don't know everything, we may have misconceptions about uh, certain things going on and about judgment. From that point of view, Jerry and Panel, I believe it's a wonderful thing to talk about judgment and um, we should not be afraid of judgment as long as we are right with God and with our fellow man. Judgment is something um, uh, to be afraid of if you are not right with the law or right with God in this case. Now, you mentioned certain aspects of judgment, uh, which for some people, maybe even listening today, they may not have an idea what's that. But we are going to cover a little bit um, today about what that means, pre-Advent judgment. Because, uh, you know, Advent simply means awaiting for the second coming of Jesus. And we know that will be judgment even before Jesus comes. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. I just want to draw your attention maybe very briefly to a couple of um, passages in uh, the Bible. In in Daniel, for example, chapter 7, Daniel speaks 
about the judgment of God and important, it's very important about the judgment. In verse 22, for example, uh, judgment was made in favor of the saints. Now, it doesn't mean that God is favoring us uh, or his people. No, but his people are right with God, which means judgment will be in their favor because many people can have different views or understanding of people, but that will be vindicated, if you like, you know, uh, all the character which can affect uh, in judgment. There is also some beautiful passages in the Bible, uh, for example, in Romans chapter um, 8, in uh, verses 1-2, uh, also says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They are judged and fully vindicated on the basis of their faith in Jesus. Very good. Now, uh, Lynn. Yes, so I'd like to uh, present judgment in a slightly different way, some in a way that most of us probably have experienced during my life, both at primary, secondary, and my tertiary education, there were examinations. An examination is a judgment. Now, I remember distinctly some of the uh, exam questions I had to answer. I knew the answers. I was well prepared. And so I, I wrote the, uh, the paper during the exam, and I felt happy about it because I was prepared for it. If, on the other hand, I wasn't prepared, then that examination would have been somewhat terrifying. And I think this applies to life as we live out our lives. If we live according to God's will and accept the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have nothing to fear. On the other hand, if we live a selfish life and we reject the sacrifice of Jesus, there is everything to fear. That's well put, uh, Len. Thank you for that. Um, I have the same recollection going and sitting for an exam as we all had, no doubt. If, you, if you're prepared for it, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now, Joe, there's a, a very interesting verse in Romans, chapter 14, verse 10. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, uh, there is a text in Romans 14:10 that says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are some people who think that um, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the judgment. You've, um, there is, you know, you shall not come into judgment. I'll, I'll, that's misquoting of John 5.24, which I'll read now. Most assuredly, I say to you, these are Jesus' own words, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, we know that Paul wrote that all must appear before the judgment seat. And on the surface, it appears to con conflict with what Jesus says, that there will be those who might not have to. But a careful study of these scriptures shows that all must indeed appear before God in the judgment. But those who hear my words, and I'm referring to Jesus' words in John 5, that is, ra obey rather than just enjoy the thought and go on to live life to please themselves, because knowledge of True doctrine is of no avail to those who do not put their knowledge into practice by faith and believe in him 
truly, that is not the way the devil believes and trembles, that's to quote James, but they have placed their trust in Christ as their saviour and they trust him for salvation. Now, these shall not come into judgment or rather into condemnation in the judgment, but have passed from death to life. As has already been alluded to, we do not need to worry about the judgment, but place our faith in him who died to save us and act on that faith by the grace of God. So, yes, all must face their life record, but those who hear Jesus and believe in him have passed from death into life. Mm, Indeed. So it would seem as though even those who have no faith in God must all still appear before God. There's no escape, basically. That's what it means, isn't it? Um, and you speak, sometimes you speak to people who say, well, look, I just think it's important to do your best, live a good life, don't harm anybody. And, you know, that's it. When you close your eyes, when you die, that's, that's it. And uh, the Bible actually tells something quite different that we still all must appear before our maker. And uh, we're going to look at that in, in further detail as we go on. Um, Nick, did you want to say something? Yes, I just want to add um, what Joe's just saying that it appears to be conflictual. You know, what uh, Paul says or Jesus is not actually. But what we need to understand is that somebody could be called to judgment. But if the, all the accusations are withdrawn, then there is no need of judgment anymore. Which means this is the thing, uh, if we are with Jesus through the blood of Jesus, we will not come to the judgment. And we're talking about different stages of judgment. We may uh, uh, clarify that one as we go. Um, but I believe when would be the final judgment, those who are right with God, the righteous one, they will not appear before the judgment seat. That's already clarified. But those people who may have different views, for them will be clarified too, in regard even to God's people. They will be vindicated, as we said, uh, we read a bit earlier. All right. Now, Len, who who is actually ultimately responsible for their eternal destiny? It seems like an obvious question. But uh, is there a, a Bible passage? In fact, does Jesus tell us something about that? Yes. But before I start sharing that, I want to mention there are at least four groups of people who need to know what we're sharing today about the judgment. There's a group of people who believe in what's called a particular redemption. They are those who believe that God has picked out various individuals. We don't know by what criteria and they will be saved, and anybody else who's not on his particular list misses out. We also need to address the business about when somebody has accepted Jesus as their saviour, and from that point, they don't actually, there's no actual change in their lives. Then there's a third group, There's the group who say that when you accept Christ as your saviour, he does everything. You just float along like a piece of driftwood on the sea. But Jesus does everything. And then there are the non-believers 
who don't know about or don't care about the judgment. So the remarks that I'm about to make is uh, of special interest to these groups, particular redemption, those who believe they're justified but don't do anything. Then there's the group that believe, who believe, but then they say, well, we don't need to do anything. Jesus does it all. Then there's non-believers. Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 takes great pains to talk about those who will be saved and those who won't be saved. And he puts it in terms of drafting sheep and goats. I know we've mentioned this in a previous program. The sheep represent the saved and the goats represent the unsaved. And then later, after just mentioning that, he qualifies who are those who are saved and who those are, who are not. And he mentions various things. And um, I'll read verse 35. He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then these righteous the sheep in this analogy, say, Lord, when did we see you in all these situations? And he's, Jesus says, or the judge, Jesus says, well, what you did to others, it was that you did unto me. So how you treated others counted as far as I was concerned. Then there's the other groups. They didn't do this. They didn't help the, those who were in need or those who were lonely or that kind of thing. They, that's the criteria. I know there's belief and, and all that in it. So it's how people live their lives. And that is the criteria by which Jesus makes his judgment, which means that we each are responsible for what will happen to us after we die. Simple as that. Yeah. It's not particular redemption and some of these other things. We are responsible when we have the knowledge of how to be saved and how to live for our own redemption. Well, that seems clear enough, Len, doesn't it? And yet um, there may be some confusion still in the minds of some because if we go to Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Will, would you like to read those verses and comment, please? Because it appears to say that uh, we are saved not by works, not by anything we do. Uh, we need to have a close look at that because what Len has just read for us appears to indicate that uh, what we do and how we live has very much a bearing on our own salvation. Is there, is there a contradiction here? Can you elaborate? Jerry, yes. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10 says that uh, we are saved by grace and uh, and through faith, and not of ourselves and not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet uh, in James chapter 2 verse 17 it says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then in Revelation 20 Verses 12 and 13, we read that the dead are judged by their works. 
Let me refer to James 2 verse 24, which says in essence, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Well, this is an apparent problem, but it's this problem is solved by examining the whole of James's argument in his epistle. James is refuting the idea that a person can have saving faith without producing any good works. You see, genuine faith in Christ, James says, will produce a changed life and result in good works. James is not saying that justification is by faith plus works, but that a person who is truly justified by faith will have good works in his or her life. The works are an outward show of genuine faith in Christ. And it's that outward show that justifies the believer in the sight of other people, if you think about that. And as Len has commented, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, he uses the premise, how have you acted, that's works, how have you acted toward those around you? Um, there are two little statements that I have found which I'd like to read. Our works are the external evidences of the genuineness of our saving experience. And consequently, the elements to be appraised during the judgment. And secondly, in the end, the judgment is not the time when God decides to accept or reject us, but the time when God finalizes our choice, whether or not we have accepted him. A choice that we have made manifest by our works. Well, thanks very much, Will, for clearing that up. That's um, that's a very good explanation. I'd like to go back to, to Len. You had something to add too, Len. Yes, well, we're saved initially only through the grace of God. But there's something that comes afterwards. Jesus actually tells us in John 15, he uh, says, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. Ah, that's an important thing. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he gives a classic example himself. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in his love. So if you like, our lives are being saved is a two-phase issue. The initial phase of accepting the sacrifice made for us, and then, as it says in my Bible, remaining in his love by doing his command. So there's a believing, accepting to start with. That has to continue on. And then there's a doing part. Yes, there's, there's a, a perfect balance between the two, isn't there? Um, Nick, did you have something to add? I just wanted to say that it could be very easily confused, this aspect of salvation and judgment. This is probably where we need to really clarify uh, some things. Salvation is only through the grace of God. There is not any worse we can do to be saved. But uh, judgment 
is to, again, clarify some things which we humans may not understand. That analogy with the sheep and goats. Now, I grew up at the farm and we were raising sheep and we have goats and other things. You know, the sheep is not guilty that's a sheep and the goat is not guilty either that's a goat when they are separated. But you know why they are separated from each other? Because particularly when they go into the stable, they cannot live together. You know, in heaven, there will not be room there for those people who gave themselves to God and those people who didn't care. And God will uh, clarify these things through the judgment and those aspects which... This is not an easy subject about judgment because straight away people are put on guard when you say, huh, huh, uh, what are you talking about judgment? Is that God a loving God if he's judging? Of course he's a loving God because he judges righteously. That's the difference. Okay. Now, the lesson is called the judging process, and we've indicated already that there are certain phases of the judgment, and one of the phases is the pre-advent judgment. So is the concept of judgment before the return of Christ found in Scripture? When do we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When does that happen? How does that work? Well, I mean, we are here now, and yet we talk of a, a pre-advent judgment, and we'll look at why that is. Um, Lydia, can you uh, give us a, a reference from the Old Testament and maybe even from the New Testament that clearly demonstrate a work of investigation into the lives of God's people as part of the judgment process? Yes, Jerry, uh, I would like to mention in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So here we observe a court judgment was seated, and the judge who is God the creator took place and the books were opened. So there are books of recordings of our lives. There are books of good deeds and bad deeds and books of life was opened. So uh, I would like to read another verse in Revelation uh, chapter 20 uh, from 11 to 13. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Mm. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Mm. 
So it means the book of life in which people are recorded when they make a commitment with God, when they give their life to God through the baptism. And uh, here we observe that it says that the dead are judged, great and small. You've said a couple of times and, and the books are open. To me, it comes over as uh, uh, some kind of investigation or examination. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Ken, can you back that up perhaps with uh, something that Jesus said? Yes. There's a very important story lesson for all Christians today. It's also a warning about being prepared for the return of Jesus. The story begins in the city of Bethany where Jesus is telling parables all those who had gathered to hear him, including the chief priests and elders of the church, who were there to try and catch him out. He is explaining God's plan for mankind in simple terms so they can understand it. In Matthew chapter 22, he talks about a great wedding feast given by a king for his son. This was going to be a major event, and everything was laid on for uh, all the people that were invited. Now, the king sends his servants to everyone that was invited to the wedding, which represented the Jews as they were both Christian. But many were not interested, and others made light of it. So he sends more servants, telling them all the great plans he has laid for them at this wedding. But again, many were not interested. In fact, some even treated the servants very harshly, and some were even killed. When the king heard about this, he sent his army and destroyed all those who had used and killed the servants. Again, he sends servants to everyone, and then he sends his servants to everyone they can find anywhere, representing the Gentiles or non-Jews who couldn't use and invites all to come to this great event, even those people who were unworthy, not invited, because he wanted as many people as possible to partake of this great day. The day arrives and the king himself comes in to inspect all the people the servants had invited to the wedding, which represents the judgment. When he sees a man that has no wedding garment on, something the king had provided himself, he goes up to the person and asks why he is not wearing the special garment provided. The man is speechless. He has no excuse. The king is very angry, and as this person has brought dishonor to the king and discord to the festivals, he tells his servants to tie the man up and cast him into the outer darkness, away from the presence of God. You see, the wedding garment represents the righteousness of Christ. Without it, none of us can stand before God. This person thought he was good enough in his own right, not needing Jesus' cover for his sins. And as we read in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, none of us are worthy to stand before God unless we have the righteousness of Jesus. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ken. Uh, that was very clear. Now, Lydia, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, there is also a very clear reference to uh, the pre-Advent judgment. Um, can you tell us what you found there? Yes, there is uh, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, it says that I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, 
to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So this phase of judgment, of pre-advent judgment, is already taking place before the second coming of Jesus. Yes, that's quite solemn when you think about it, isn't it? That are, you, are you saying then that um, as we speak, that phase of the judgment is is happening? This is very interesting, Jerry, because uh, many people yeah, will associate this kind of aspect to the judgment just after we pass away, it's all gone, then in, in the new earth will be judgment. But actually, it's a very positive thing for us all um, to understand that judgment, God will judge us even uh, while we are alive, because that's where it's decided our uh, destiny, if you like. Mm-hmm. And it's important to live this life with that in mind. What about if I will be judged and then found guilty? If you are found guilty and you are sent to the prison, even in these days, then you can be in prison there uh, even though you wish to do all the good or even uh, repent for the wrongdoing and so on and so forth. It's Mm. very important for us to have in the mind that aspect of judgment because that will help us also to keep us right with God. And it's our uh, duty to be right with God. I mean, as you mentioned before, uh, there is not such thing that you can do anything you like uh, in life as long as you claim the name of Jesus. That's not good enough. That's right. Now, Joe, in in Revelation uh, chapter 14, verses 14 to 16, it talks about the harvest of the earth being ripe. Now, now, we've just been talking about the timing of the judgment and that there is what we call then a a pre-advent judgment or investigation, examination, whatever word you want to use. Can you read these verses and explain what this means with regard to the timing of the judgment? Yes, Jerry. Revelation 14, 14 to 16. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. There's a lot in there to get your head around. It's Mm -hmm. packed with imagery and symbols. The Son of Man is um, no other than Jesus sitting on a white cloud. Well, that's uh, symbolic of the second coming when he returns and every eye shall see him. The gold crown symbolizes complete victory, no longer a crown of thorns. The sickle is reaping. Time is right. The harvest is ready. It is time to finally separate the valuable grain from the tares. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Now, these are allowed to grow together until the end. Then they are harvested. The grain is separated from the tares, which are bundled up to be thrown onto the fire. And as we already mentioned, the parable of the sheep and goats, where they are separated, one on the right and the other on the left, all point to a clear distinction made between those who trust in God for salvation 
and those who feel they don't need a saviour. And their ultimate fate, whichever it be, um, is one of their own choosing. Hence, in these texts, we see the second coming of Christ. Each case has been decided before the return of Christ. All has been examined prior to his return. Nothing is done until the judgment is complete and each case decided. The second coming basically finalises finalizes the destiny of, of all. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Jesus said too that, um, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. So that, that alone is an indication that um, the decision has been made. And we find that in, in different places in Scripture. Now, so in summary, Jesus makes it very clear that all the dead, both righteous and unrighteous, remain unconscious in their graves until the final resurrections. Now, we've, we've looked at uh, John uh, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, but this, there's a lot in these two verses, and I'd just like to go there again. Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And verse 29, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Therefore, when Jesus returns to this earth in all his majesty and glory, every case will have been decided either for everlasting life or everlasting death. So we need to move on to another phase of judgment, and that is called the millennial judgment. So what happens to the living righteous and the righteous dead who are resurrected when Christ returns? Where do they go? For how long? And, and what do they do? Len, can you help us there? Well, I can help you where they go. I know what they, should I say, we will be involved in. But in John 14, verses 1 to 3, which is Nick's favourite part of the Bible, and I think it's mine too, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. This business about the secret rapture contradicts that particular phrase, I will receive you unto myself. Then if we pop over to First Thessalonians chapter 4, the Thessalonian Christians were very worried about what's happening and there was a lot of confusion about what's happening, just as there is these days. Some have this idea and some that. But First Thessalonians 4 verse 16 and on, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there's a couple of words there that are very important. Who are the dead in Christ? It's basically saying God's people, the saints. They will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left, who's the we? Again, this is the righteous, God's special people. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. Who's the them? That's the dead who've risen just prior. 
and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. And this last little bit that says, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Simply this, the righteous people, whether dead or alive, at Jesus' coming, the dead will be raised from the graves and we will all rise to meet the Lord in the air and coupling that with John 14, 1 to 3, which I quoted just before, we go back to heaven, his father's house. There's something that happens up there which we'll deal with soon. What happens to the rest? They remain dead here on planet Earth. No change, but the righteous are raised, go to heaven with Jesus. Thank you, uh, Len. Now we go to Ken, from Len to Ken. Talking about the righteous, yeah, we've just uh, said that they uh, are taken to heaven, they are resurrected to be with the Lord. Ken, is that the end of the story? What do they do when they're resurrected? Does the Bible tell us that there is a specific task that is given to the righteous? Well, Jerry, God's word tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death is no power, but they will be priests of God, of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 tells us, Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And what is talking about here is that uh, obviously when Jesus comes back, he is not coming to this earth. Many people think Jesus is coming to the earth on his return to set up his kingdom, but it makes it very clear that he's not setting good until the earth is renewed after the thousand-year period that his people spend with him in heaven, where the righteous, those that are saved and have been judged prior to his coming to uh, the earth and bounds, who do not make it to heaven, as told in Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, you do, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not to, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we, those people, will judge angels and much more the things of this life? So we are going, all the people, all the Christians who have the righteousness of Jesus and keep his commandments, be in the heaven for a thousand years, judging and looking when the books are opened, everyone who hasn't made it, to see why they haven't made it and to see that God's um, judgment is fair and true. Mm. Indeed. And, and we'll do, is there another place, another reference perhaps in the uh, New Testament that talks about the saints participating in a work of judgment? And when does this uh, phase of the judgment process sometimes referred to as the millennial judgment take place? Can you give us some ex more insight into that? Yes, Jerry, can I give a, a short answer in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5? It talks about uh, the thrones that were seated 
and those who had been given authority to judge. You see, God's not judging alone here. Those who had given the authority to judge. And uh, what we have there is a picture of the saints that had come to life uh, the second coming of Jesus and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They participate in the judgment. So the New Testament text is Revelation 20 verses 4 to 5 of a, a, of a millennial judgment. Indeed. Very good. Now, Lydia, what does it teach us about the character of God that before any of the sleeping lost are resurrected to face the second death, the saved will be involved in the judging process and no one will be punished until we too see the justice and fairness of God. What does it tell us about the character of God? God, our God, the creator, he is going to be the judge and Jesus and his justice being a just God will be seen to be done and understood by, by the saints. So everything in our lives is recording, recorded in books as we have read in the Bible. And the books uh, are going to be opened and the dead are judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So the angels are here. The guardian angels are with us and Every one of us, we have a guardian angel and everything, whatever we say, we do, all our actions are recording, recorded in the books. Three things probably will surprise us uh, in regard to heaven. I mean, saying that we'll see people in heaven that we would have thought no way they can make it in heaven. Or uh, there will be, we'll be looking for people in heaven. They will not be there and will be very sure in this life that oh, those people can make it heaven. And even says that we'll be surprised about ourselves. But the thing is this, we can have a wrong impression or judgment uh, about people, but God makes it right in front of everyone, even in front of the heavenly beings. Yes, indeed. Uh, What I see in this also is that God is fully transparent in what he does. He lays it all out. Uh, There can be absolutely no doubt as to the the fairness of God's judgment. Okay, we have to move on uh, because there's yet another phase of the judgment that we shall call the executive judgment. Now, the final phase in the judging process is the sentencing stage where God in his mercy puts a complete and final end to sin and anyone connected to it. In a limited sense, this happened previously with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and a worldwide flood in Noah's day. Now, Nick, what does the Bible say about the final destruction of the unrighteous? Some Christians find it out of character for a God of love to destroy his own creation, especially those who are created in his own image. Can you give us some Bible references that clarify? Sure, uh, Jerry. In Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, from verse 6, it says here, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness 
to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah and eight people. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood to the world of the ungodly. You see, God clarifies here that he's a merciful God, but he's a just God. Also in, uh, in um, the same uh, book, uh, Second Peter, and this time in chapter 3, says this, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yes, thank you, Nick. Now, just having heard you read those verses, there is a a huge destruction coming, if you like, of sin and sinners, and uh, and a and it's a strange thing, really, when you think about it. I mean, um, Joe, can I ask you, what does the Bible say about the heartache God Himself suffers in having to destroy the impenitent sinner, so that justice and mercy are perfectly fulfilled? It it seems to me that um, that it must affect God in a very particular way having to destroy his own creation. Can you give us some thoughts on that? Yes, Ezekiel gives us a couple of uh, texts that um, depict this very thing. And I'll abbreviate, I won't read the whole text, but um, one of the verses says in Ezekiel 18.32, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord, repent and live. Mm -hmm. And then in Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? I'd like to use another text, um, and it says, The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept, and as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only... I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David here, King David grieves for his rebellious son who had been killed during the uprising which went belly up. Now we know that God's capacity for love is greater than David's for his own rebellious son. It's infinite, and I believe his capacity for grief is similar. If David grieved so so for his own son, how much more does God grieve for each and every rebellious child who goes on hurting him or herself and hurting others, and if they persist, will ultimately lead to an eternal separation from God? So very lots of grief there. 
lots of grief. And, and when you consider the fact that uh, every human being on the face of the planet, wherever they live, in whatever culture they live, uh, in whatever religion they embrace, Indeed, Jesus took our place. Yeah, yeah. And to see one of them lost unnecessarily through their persistent wrong choices must really grieve the heart of God. Now, finally, we have to move on to a term that the Bible uh, uses, and that is the second death. It's mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 14, and 21, verse 8. Will, can you explain to whom this applies? Yes, Jerry. God's intention is that every one of us should only have died once, Hmm. and then after that receive the eternal reward in heaven. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as each person is destined to die once, after that comes the judgment. Unfortunately, for the the unbeliever, it's not so. There is no eternal life. And that's why Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, the unintended second death. That's uh, as concise as I can put it, uh, Jerry. Thank you, Will, yeah. Now, Len, some people may have asked the question, does God raise all the wicked then who have ever lived back to life just so that he can destroy them again? Why not just leave them dead since by their own choice they've decided not to follow Christ and accept his salvation and as a consequence have already missed out on eternal life? Why raise them again? Well, I think this is a very good answer. God is being very fair again. He's being transparent. And the fact that the people who are unrighteous have rejected him, it gives them the opportunity to see what they rejected. I think it's as simple as that. And after they've seen that, then there will be eternal annihilation. And also, when you say eternal annihilation, is there a very, very clear reference to that in in the Old Testament? Maybe you can give us a few quotes from Old and New Testament as to the, the final destruction of evil and anybody associated with evil. Yes, well, I'll only give you the one from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, which kills this idea of an ever-burning hell and people being punished in ever-burning hell. No, that is not fair. God treats people justly and fairly and righteously. And sin and those who've uh, chosen to link their lives with uh, sin will be totally annihilated, which is something that many people don't, they haven't been taught that, but it's clear as anything. Thank you, Len. I think it's time for a a summary uh, as we wind up. Our time is running out. I'd just like to say that the final destruction of Satan and his angels and all the wicked 
will cleanse the universe from sin and its consequences. And yet even the final destruction of the wicked is an act of God's love, not only for the saints, but also for the wicked themselves. They would rather die than live in the presence of a God who is a consuming fire for sin. This final destruction of sin and sinners and death itself, as it says in Revelation 20 verse 14, clearly proves that there is no such place as an ever-burning hell, as you said, Lynn, where the wicked are kept alive forever and ever to be tortured by a merciless and cruel God who takes delight in their sufferings. The wicked suffer the just and proportional punishment for whatever evil or sin they have committed. Sin is finally completely eradicated, and God's creation will be recreated to its original perfection. The judging process is both necessary and unavoidable. The fullness of God's love and mercy for fallen humanity was on display at Calvary when God sent his Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And the fullness of God's justice is on display throughout the judging process, which according to the prophet Daniel in chapter 8, verse 14, and Revelation 14, verse 6, is in progress as we speak. In Revelation 15, verses 3 to 4, it says, Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. It is our wish that we may all live our lives in such a way that it is pleasing to the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, and in whom alone is life, so that we can have a calm assurance and a quiet confidence that we have nothing to fear for the judgment. Jesus is by your side as your best friend and saviour. We can rejoice in the good news of God's final judgment. Ken, would you like to lead in a closing prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is a light onto our feet and food for our souls. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed all things pertaining to everlasting life in your word, that all may know the way to salvation. Lord, we pray that many people will be moved to search out the scriptures, so they too will know what part they have to play to receive wedding garment of the soon return of Jesus. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your participation, your input. Uh, Not an easy subject about... um, judgment but you know uh, we are going to conclude this series of uh, future hope with a beautiful bible study i'm I'm inviting you dear friend to join us next time when we are going to talk about all things new how good that will be until then may god richly bless you and have a safe walk in the footsteps of jesus